What do you get when you cross ancient Buddhist wisdom with what we know about how to help a relationship thrive? That's what's in store for you in today's episode of Relationship Alive. But first, Relationship Alive is an offering to you so that you can have the most successful relationships possible. If you're finding the show to be helpful, please consider a donation to help ensure that we can continue. To choose something that feels right for you, please visit neilsatin.com support, or you can text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And this week, a big thank you goes out to Drew, Johanna, Jolene, Anne, and Bin. Thank you so much for your generous and ongoing support of the podcast. This episode is also brought to you by Green Chef. For $50 off your first box of Green Chef, go to greenchef.us slash alive. And I'll tell you a little bit more about them later in the show. Finally, just a quick reminder that there are two free ways for you to get extra support in your relationship. If you haven't downloaded it yet, you can grab the guide to my top three relationship communication secrets. These are the kinds of things that will help you stay connected to your partner, no matter how challenging the topic that you're talking about. Just visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 to download the free guide. If you're on Facebook, you can join the Relationship Alive community where we have more than 2,000 people gathered to create a safe space to get support in your relationship. And if you're on Instagram, we just started the Relationship Alive official Instagram page. So please come find us there and make sure you follow the official account. And now let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. On this show, we are focused time and time again about how to have amazing relationships. And this begs the question, what makes for an amazing relationship? And of course, part of that, in fact, a a big part of that is the intention that you set. I'm not saying that you rigidly hold to an agenda of what you think your relationship should be, um, but more that you create a vision with your partner for what you want. And at the same time, if that vision doesn't include some flexibility, some resilience, the ability to, uh, to work with whatever your relationship brings to you, then you might be in for a really hard time. And some aspect of that hard time is probably part of the game. And that is all what we are going to talk about today. We are having a return visit from one of the guests who was here at the very beginning of the Relationship Alive podcast when it was just a vision, more or less, that that I had. Her name is Susan Piver, and you may recall her from episode eight talking about how to tackle the hard questions. And that's referring to her New York Times bestselling book, The Hard Questions, 100 Essential Questions to Ask Before You Say I Do. And as you might recall from that, I love questions. They're at the heart of curiosity, and which is such an important element in having a successful relationship. 
But there's more. And thankfully, Susan Piver has been writing about it. In fact, she also is an accomplished and practicing Buddhist meditator and mindfulness practitioner and mindfulness teacher and instructor. And her latest book, The Four Noble Truths of Love, is all about Buddhist wisdom for your relationship. And it contains some unconventional truths that will actually probably be really enlightening for you and for many of you, perhaps even very reassuring in terms of your own experience of relationship. And once you shine your vision and your and your light on the truth of what is happening, then it gives you a lot of power to work with it. And that's what Susan Piver's latest book is all about. So if you're interested in hearing the first episode that I mentioned, you can visit neilsatin.com slash Susan. Um, she was the first Susan that we spoke to, so... She got she got to lay claim to the name Susan forever for the Relationship Alive podcast. Um, and and if you want to download a transcript of this episode, you can visit neilsatin.com slash Susan two, the number two, or you can text the word passion to the number three, three, four, four, four and follow the instructions. So I think that's it. Without further ado, Susan Piver, thank you so much for being here with us today on Relationship Alive. I am so glad to be here, Neil. Thank you so much for asking me. You're most welcome. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And I particularly love your take on relationship. And I have to admit that, you know, when I first heard the title of your latest book, The Four Noble Truths of Love, I was prepared for something that was a little high-minded or philosophical, and I wasn't prepared for it to be so gritty the way the book actually is. And so I really appreciate that, your ability to bring some philosophical concepts in, in a way that's really grounded in what our experience in love can be. I appreciate that. I'm glad. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm, I would say what inspired you, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that for people who don't know much about Buddhism and like, why did you write these Four Noble Truths of Love? What, what led you to distill it that way? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. Well, I was in a, a place in my marriage. This was, I don't know, some time ago where I could not get along with my husband as you know, you're married. Yep. The relationships go through these crazy phases where you feel close and you feel passionate and you feel connected and held. And then one day something happens and you feel distant. And, and we were in a particular cycle that was very unpleasant. We weren't screaming at each other. We weren't like furious. Nobody had done anything wrong, quote unquote. We just could not get along. Everything one person said or did like hurt the other person or made them angry. And it was, it was bizarre. Even the most simplest questions like, what do you want to have for dinner? Could make us have an argument. It, it was, it felt insane and we didn't know why. And it went on for weeks and months. So one day I was sitting at my desk, just crying basically because I did not know how to fix this problem. And we had tried talking to each other and not talking to each other and 
going to a marriage counselor and we tried all sorts of things. And I realized as I was sitting at my desk, I do not know how to fix this. I don't even know where to begin. And a voice said to me, begin at the beginning. At the beginning are four noble truths. So this meant something to me as a longtime Buddhist practitioner because the four noble truths, the first teachings that the Buddha gave upon attaining enlightenment are like the core of the entire Buddhist path to this day. So I'm like, oh, four noble truths. Yes, I know what they are, but how would they apply to my relationship? The four noble truths of Buddhism are, the first truth is life is suffering. And I know that sounds terrible. I don't think the Buddha meant life sucks. It meant something more like life is unsatisfying, meaning you think, well, if I have this job or this relationship or this amount of money or this accomplishment, I will be safe. I will be free from suffering. I will be happy. And yeah, those things are great and they will make you happy for a time, but they will not exempt you from the suffering of being human. That's a bummer. <laughs> and the second, the second noble truth is called cause of suffering. The cause of suffering is called grasping, which basically means pretending like the first noble tr truth is not true and trying nonetheless to create stable ground for yourself and trying to hold on to the things you think will make you happy and push away the things that you think will make you unhappy. While that is a very sensible approach to life, it's still not going to create the kind of stability that we, that we hope for. And the third noble truth is called the cessation of suffering, which means something like, now that you know the cause, you also know the cure. If the cause is grasping, stop grasping, which obviously is not that simple, but there's some insight there. You stop grasping. And the fourth noble truth is called the Eightfold Path. Buddhism is, is full of numbers, as I'm sure you know. And the Eightfold Path are the eight steps that you could take that would eliminate grasping and therefore eliminate you, uh, therefore exempt you from suffering. So, okay, I thought, well, that's cool. What does this have to do with my love life, though? And so I just started noodling around with these four truths, which basically, as I say, follow a sequence. There's a statement of the truth, the cause of the truth, the cure for the suffering, and then the steps you can take to put that cure into play. So when it came to love, what I came up with is the first noble truth of love is that relationships never stabilize. They are uncomfortable. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Why didn't anyone ever tell us this? It never stabilizes. You can be in a period like we were talking about earlier where everything's great and then that disappears and a different phase arises. They're like weather fronts. And the discomfort of this, of relationships is present at every point in the relationship arc. Like if you are going on a blind date, you don't even know the person. It's already very uncomfortable. And then if you fall in love, of course, it's fantastic. But it's also uncomfortable in its own way because it's so intense, so fraught. And you, you think, well, what did that look mean? And maybe I shouldn't have worn those pants. Or, you know, every moment is very heightened, which is heavenly, like I say, but it's also uncomfortable. And then in a long-term relationship, the discomfort 
morphs into something called irritation. There just is this perpetual, I mean, not constant, but this relatively constant irritation of living with another person. No matter how much you like each other and love each other, it gives rise to this kind of, you're, you're rubbing against each other in an uncomfortable way because of, for various reasons. That's the first noble truth. The relationships don't stabilize and they're uncomfortable. Yeah, and that was, for me, just reading that, I, I felt this big yes within me. Like, of course. And, and so much of the grasping onto this idea that a perfect relationship is always smiles, is never suffering, is perfect parenting, is we're always amazing lovers together. That's just a recipe for disappointment over and over again. Um, and, and also for, I think, a lot of us to feel like if that's what you subscribe to, well, wow, I must be doing really horribly. <laughs> or, yeah. or it's what drives people apart because they think, well, we're not having that ideal thing, so there must be some fatal flaw to this particular connection. Yeah. And the mo to add to that confusion is sometimes there is a fatal flaw. For the lion's share of what we experience in what I would call ordinary relationship problems, which can range from anything from you're always late and that really makes me mad to, oh, you didn't tell me that you were contemplating, you know, gender reassignment surgery. That's, you know, a big deal, big, big deal. But none of those things are indications of harm, I would say, although they may be painful intentional harm. So I just want to make clear that I, I exempt from this whole view, relationship problems that are rooted in abuse of any kind or addiction. Those are different kinds of problems, a different arena, and these things don't apply. But otherwise, yeah, we think when most of us say we're looking for love, we don't really mean that. So it's something that I've noticed in myself and, and, and others we're not looking for love. We're looking for safety. We're looking for someone who will help us make a cocoon, but we're looking for someone who will help us escape sorrow and make us feel whole and, and healed. And hopefully the person you're in love with will do those things for you, but it's not that simple. So there's actually nothing less safe than love. And when we try to make it safe, it becomes something else, not, not love exactly. But yeah, so I felt relief too when I realized that, by the way, like, oh, yeah, there are things that are wrong in this relationship, but we're not doing anything wrong in the sense that this is, you know, this was a bad choice. Right, right. And I really like that you make that distinction that in a relationship where you're experiencing abuse or um, one or both of you is plagued by addiction, that that changes the rules a bit in terms of what what one should do, I think, to to get help and and what's acceptable in in a relationship. I agree. Um, and this question around safety, this was actually I'm so glad that you brought this up right now, because this was actually one of the things that I felt myself 
like that was a little edgy for me. And the reason why being not because I think that relationships are safe. In fact, I think that the the act of being so vulnerable automatically exposes you to to being the potential to be harmed um, Mm -hmm. by your partner. And, and so much of what we have to do is learn how to embrace that vulnerability without, um, without succumbing to the fear that your partner's actually out to get you, which is what that kind of vigilance can, can feel like, right? Like, oh, yeah. um, but on the flip side, there's so much important uh, material and juice there in relationship for couples who are paying attention to the safety, the yeah. safety of their their the container of their relationship actually helping each other stay out of a of a primal brain triggered state as much as possible not that you'll never get there this is my own personal view so i'm i'm curious for you how do you reconcile that between well there is some safety to the container that we want to be conscious of and actually mm-hmm. contributing to mm-hmm. and then there's this statement of yours that lands right in that, which is that love isn't safe? Well, that's a great question. It's a really good question. And I would say the answer has something to do with trust. Like, obviously, the opposite of safe is untrustworthy, unsafe. So I just can share with you a little anecdote from the my own life. When I when my husband, my now husband and I first got involved, he was going through a very difficult divorce. And I didn't know how it was going to work out for us. It, it really could just as easily have gone in any direction because it was just a very, very tumultuous time in his life. And friends would say to me, you know, this is a danger side. At no point to this very day, have I ever doubted how he felt about me or what his intentions were toward me? So even though it could have just just as easily have gone completely off the rails and it was very unsafe, I did not distrust him. And to this day, there's, I can't explain why, but there's just this instinct. This guy is on my side and neither of us knows how it's going to play out, but I don't doubt. I don't doubt who he is and what he feels. So that, without that, almost nothing could have happened. Without that, it's very, very hard to allow for even the slightest vulnerability. And I would say, nor should you allow for it. Because that foundational trust, which feels different to different people and is based on different things. It is not formulaic. But without that, for me, I, I would have, it would have been a very bad, very bad experience. So does that make sense? Yeah. And, and I appreciate that you're making the distinction that it had what you needed to feel like at a foundational level, you could trust this person. I knew he loved me. Yeah. Yeah, and and yet you also go on to describe in your book times where you're convinced that you hate him and he hates you, and and that's <laughs> part of the cycle, right? That we that we can experience. Yes, it is. Yeah, Susan, 
Just need to take a quick break to talk about this week's sponsor, Green Chef, who not only have amazing food, but who also are offering a great special for you to give them a try. Chloe and I sampled their paleo menu and not only had three incredibly yummy, sustainably sourced meals, but we had a great time cooking together. It was so great to have most of the prep work done for us, so all we had to do was follow the step-by-step instructions, and voila, we had high-quality meals that everyone, including the kids, enjoyed. I think my favorite was probably the Montreal Spiced Shaved Steak Hash, while Chloe's was the Chicken Tinga, which had this amazing cashew crema sauce that totally brought out the tangy taste of the lime juice we had sprinkled over the top. In fact, I just had the rest of that for today's lunch. So Green Chef is a USDA certified organic company, and each week they send you a wide variety of organic ingredients and imaginative tasty recipes, handpicked and delivered right to your door. Meal plans include paleo, vegan, vegetarian, keto, gluten-free, omnivore, and carnivore. Their expert chefs design recipes with gourmet flavor, and the pre-made sauces, dressings, and spice mixtures help you get more flavor with less time spent in preparation. And as I mentioned, they have a great offer for you as a Relationship Alive listener. For $50 off your first box of Green Chef, go to greenchef.us slash alive. That's $50 off your first box if you go to greenchef.us slash alive. Thank you, Green Chef, for helping support thriving, healthy, sustainable relationships. And now back to our conversation with Susan Piver. I, I think that, you know, at the beginning of a relationship, part of the, the whether it's the divine purpose or the, the genetic purpose of all those uh, neurochemicals that go through our bodies um, is to is to make us trust the other person before where we really should on some mm. level, you know, mm. interesting that it, it puts us in a state where we're willing to be a little bit more vulnerable. So it, it gets us and I'm just thinking off the top of my head now, but maybe it's gets us into proximity in a way that mm. allows for true intimacy now we're getting in maybe into the spiritual component of why this all might happen, but it's that proximity that allows the true intimacy to blossom. Interesting. That's very interesting. Well, we heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> so, um, so there's, so if relationships are never stable, then let's go to the second truth that, that, um, you wrote about in your book. Okay. The second truth is the cause of the problem, which, you know, oversimplified is thinking that they should stay, be stable and comfortable actually makes them unstable and uncomfortable. So like, imagine if you just sort of gave up the idea that it's going to be comfortable. It's going to be someday we're going to fix this problem, we're going to solve this issue, and we're going to create this thing that we don't have that we need. And once we get all these things in a, in a row, we're going to, you know, go into some relationship uh, evenness that will not change. And 
aiming toward that, driving toward that vision of what this relationship should be, I, in my own relationship, actually is a cause of a lot of discomfort. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to solve our problems. We have lots of problems and we're trying to solve them all the time and constantly adjusting and tweaking and reviewing and working and losing the thread and regaining the thread with the the issues that are in our relationship. So I'm not saying that you just should stop doing that. But if you think, well, we're going to tweak this thing and then it's going to be perfect and I'm going to get everything I need and so will the other person. And unless that happens, it's not good. So the second noble truth is thinking it should be stable adds to the instability. Yeah, I, I've read that and I was like, wow, that is so brilliant that it's that, that expectation that really adds all this, like an extra layer of anxiety and, and fuel to the, the fire of whatever, whatever is happening in that moment. So if like, if what's, if, if something comes up that makes you really uncomfortable and like on rather than being able to be present for it, you have all this. It shouldn't be this way. Um, oh, no, something is wrong. Um, if, if those are the kinds of things that are coming up, then it actually removes you. It removes you from being able to respond. And mm-hmm. then at the same time, it like adds all this intensity to whatever has come up. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And the, the brilliance is in the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism in this sense, because the first noble truth, as you remember, is life is suffering. So it's very interesting. It doesn't say the suffering is the suffering. <laughs> right. It says grasping is the suffering. So in other words, suffering is part of the deal. We're, we're all going to have losses. We're all going to have problems. We're all going to have gain things and lose things. And that is unavoidable. But in the Buddhist view, that is not considered the real suffering. Although, of course, it is. But the real suffering is what we add on top of it, which in this case is called grasping. So mapped over to relationships, yes, there are going to be problems. You're going to like each other. You're not going to like each other. There's going to be desire. There's going to be disconnection. That's going to happen. That's what we. That's part of the relationship mandala. But thinking it shouldn't be that way actually causes more pain than the pain points themselves. I'm I'm just laughing on some level because um, while we're having this conversation, I'm noticing that, you know, we've had a little bit of internet difficulty and I, I don't think it's bad enough that like I think everyone listening is getting everything you're saying and I'm glad because it's it's really important. And I'm noticing that I think the local airport changed the flight pattern, so there are airplanes flying overhead now the next door neighbor's dog is barking and within me is the potential for all this grasping right like oh it shouldn't it shouldn't be this way like i should be in a soundproofed you know hermetic chamber with you know like a a big fiber optic tube connecting you and me directly so that there are no hitches and um so while we're talking i myself am embracing this practice of like okay this is this is what is this is what's happening right now um, here in, wow. in the podcast. That's interesting. That's very interesting. So that's a perfect illustration. It's a perfect illustration. And 
sometimes in Buddhism, that's called the suffering of suffering, you know, the suffering of succotash. <laughs> but there's suffering and then there's the suffering of suffering. So in relationships, there's the, you know, the discomfort and then there's, which is natural. And then there's the discomfort of the discomfort, which is optional. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and in, when you're talking about that too, I think you, you talk a lot in your book about projections and, uh, this has come up on the show before this notion of what you're, what's within you that you wish were happening or that you think is happening versus what actually is happening and how much those projections are getting in the way of the isness of what, what is actually happening right there in front of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very hard to see. It's very hard to see. We're all looking through a particular lens. So like the, the Buddhist noble truths lay out this very logical argument about why life is so hard and how to deal with it. I, I know I totally oversimplified that. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> well, that was good. I think that was accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are. We're on this on this path through the relationship noble truths and we've got relationships are never going to stable. Trying to make them stable is why you're having such a hard time. And then this is where it really gets beautiful is I think, I mean, it's been beautiful all along, Susan, but yeah. with, with the third truth, which is what we bring. So, so take it away, Susan. <laughs> um, yeah. And I appreciate that. And I agree. This is where, because I think the first two sound like, okay, it's a problem, deal with it. The, the, the third one is like, actually can be quite beautiful. So the third noble truth of love is that meeting the instability together is love or loving. So in other words, rather than trying to get it to stabilize, and this is what you need to do to make it stable. And this is what I need to do to make it stable. And I don't want to do that. And you should do this instead. And all of that, you know, conversations that must be had. But nonetheless, if instead of looking at each other as the source of the problem and the solution, I would say a great partner is one who will instead turn to stand shoulder to shoulder with you to look out at the arc of the ride that you are on together now. But this part says, well, you could also notice what's happening right now in your relationship together, meaning, and, and open to it. Meaning now, oh, we love each other. This is great. Now we don't really like each other. I don't know why. Now you really like me and I'm not that interested in you. And now we can get along and now we can't get along. Someone who will be like, I, I pictured as someone that's on a roller coaster ride with you, and you're not trying to flat straighten out the ride. You're just dipping and diving together and staying seated together. To me, that is a great partner. Just someone who will go be on the ride with you. You know, I don't mean that in a cavalier way. I mean, literally join you in this incredible ride and be on it together whatever's happening whether you're going uphill or downhill right being willing to to say here we are and yeah <laughs> exactly 
and there's a lot of power in that in that willingness to just be and and you talk about this too i'm i'm curious maybe um we can bring that in now is the the power of honesty being honest about what is but and this kind of veers us into the fourth noble truth which is about the path and and how honesty is used and maybe we could talk about how that's part of the path and and how that weaves into where we're going from here sure yeah thank you so the fourth noble truth says here's how you could possibly do these things potentially do these things and i looked at the three basic cycles of teachings within buddhism and what they suggest in terms of creating a spiritual path and map them over to what they would mean to me. And because all of this is what it means to me, and then I'm sharing it in case it was useful to others. How would I map those into my relationship? So they're basically four qualities. And the first quality that is, these first two qualities create the foundation for a relationship. And just like anything, a house or a spiritual path or a piece of art, if you don't have a foundation, you don't, you're not getting anywhere. You have to have the foundation for your relationship, for your house, for your whatever it is you're doing. And the qualities that create a foundation, meaning if you don't have them, you're not going to be able to build anything, are first, honesty. So that doesn't mean saying what you think the moment you think it, that's silly. It means first knowing the truth yourself about who you are and what you feel. And that doesn't mean you have to know yourself perfectly and always be completely clear about how you feel, but it means knowing when you are clear and knowing when you are not. Knowing when you know the truth and knowing when you don't. And then uh, adapting your behavior to that truth. So. If you can't be honest, if you're with someone who can't be honest, not because they're a liar necessarily, although some people are, but because they don't know how to tell the truth, it's going to be very hard to have a relationship. You could have a great time. You could have an awesome love affair, but it'd be hard to make a relationship, I think. And the second quality that is foundational, is it sounds funny, I think, is called good manners. and i don't mean like knowing which fork to use particularly but but that is so important knowing which fork to use (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) well if it's important to you then it is important (laughs) Um, and in addition it's important to good manners are very profound they're they're predicated on awareness that there's actually another person present yeah. And taking an interest in what they think and what they feel and what they need. Not that you have to supply it, but, oh, this is what they're experiencing now. How could I help? How could I know when I can't help and back away? How can I notice where they are in their inner life and just recognize it? So if you're with someone who is not aware that you're there and therefore cannot have good manners, well, then obviously there's very little you can do in terms of a relationship. So honesty and good manners, I would say, are foundational. And then the third quality here is 
just simply called openness or open-heartedness. And this refers also to the part, the cycle in the Buddhist teachings. First, you create your foundation by being disciplined and keeping things simple and so on. And then your heart naturally opens to others. And this is the part in the Buddhist cycle where you think, oh, I'm not the only person here on earth. There are others. And I could actually begin to look at them as having equal importance to myself, if not greater, from time to time. It's radical, quite radical. Mm. And in a relationship, actually look at the other person as having at least equal importance to yourself in the relationship. I have to say, I found that quite shocking. (laughs) (laughs) I thought my relationship was about me. (laughs) And then sometimes I was like, oh, well, now I guess it's about him. Neither of those, you know, sometimes both of those are true, but really it's about us, thinking about us, not to the exclusion of you or me, but can I look at this person as having equal status in this relationship? It sounds like a silly question, but it's surprising how infrequently we act as if that was true. And then the fourth step here is called letting go or going beyond. And what it means in this context is looking at everything that happens between the two of you, good, bad, and ugly, not as a way to create more love or an opportunity to create more love. And this, when I realized it, was very, very heartening to me because I knew even before we got married, I cannot commit to loving this person. I, sometimes I will feel love and sometimes I won't. But what I can commit to is to deepen intimacy and to look at everything that happens between us, not again as a way to have more love, but to have more intimacy, to know each other better. And I have found that there's nothing that you cannot feed into the intimacy, intimacy machine Because love, like I say, comes and goes, but intimacy has no end. You never get to a point where you're like, oh yeah, we know each other perfectly. There's no, nothing more to reveal or know. There's always more. And so that is an honest commitment. I vow to deepen intimacy is a more true vow, I think, than I vow to love. So I found that really inspiring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so expansive. And, um, you know, I think in terms of, especially if you're feeling like your relationship has gotten stale or boring, mm-hmm. um, you know, a more conventional approach to that might be to, to try to add some, some novelty, right. To like mm-hmm. make things spicier. Right. Um, what I hear you saying is that, that my, like, yeah, I'm just all the gears are kind of turning, turning right now that that stagnation could be, um, from not really turning towards your partner and from not actually being, meeting the person, the full human who is right there in front of you with their own set of needs, desires, etc. And, and that through leaning in with each other, 
and creating more intimacy, even in those moments, even in those moments where the um, the love may not fully be there, or you might have the caring, but not the fire, or, you know, it could be any number of permutations of how you feel towards a person, mm -hmm. but that the willingness to turn in and be present with with what is happening creates intimacy that ultimately creates more, creates more and yeah. more vibrancy maybe is the word that I'm looking for. Yeah. I, I would say the vibrancy is always possible but it, it's it creates problems for me when or I would think to look at boredom as a problem that needs to be solved. I mean, we all prefer a relationship that's exciting and, and dynamic to one that is dull, obviously. And maybe it is dull for some reason that you should investigate. Absolutely. And do that investigation. But it's also possible to just be bored together. What is it like when we are bored together? Let's, be, let's, you know, let's, can we do that? Can we be side by side in this bored, boring place? I know that doesn't sound like fun, but there's something very, at the same time, intimate about being where you are together. In fact, there's no other definition of intimacy, I don't think, than just being where you actually are together. And I, again, I'm, I know that this doesn't sound like fun and, and <laughs> this is not three ways to keep it awesome. This is not that book. But <laughs> if you have ever been uh, like on a retreat, for example, where there's silence, you find that at first it's intimidating. You're like, oh, well, it's going to be lonely or sad or whatever. But after a while, you find that it is so intimate to just not talk, but to be with other people. It's bizarre. All of this projections drop away and you just are together. So the idea that you could be with someone with whom you have nothing, to whom you have nothing to say right now, it's, it's very intimate. It's, it's strange. I remember after being on my first silent retreat, thinking to myself somewhere in the middle of it, what were all those words I used to say? <laughs> Why did I need to say that? <laughs> anything, because just being together without a particular agenda is really, really deep and rich. Mm -hmm. Yeah, an experience that I've had that's along those lines, I, mean, I have done a, a a silent retreat and but we also um my wife and i are part of this um practice that we do um called infinity practice and every year we have a retreat and one of the things that we do is we do a form of muscle testing before we speak so that mm. so that nothing that you say is something that you haven't tested strong, like that it's generative to actually say this thing. Wow. So that's been another little twist on that is just feeling how much we use words idly versus when are we actually, when are we saying something that actually contributes to the life around us? 
That's so interesting. What is it called? Infinity what? Um, well, we've been studying with, with a teacher in uh, actually out in the Northampton area, um, mm -hmm. Infinity Healing Practice. It's something that she created. And uh, I've talked about it a little bit here on the show. I think we're five years into our training with this person. That and sounds it's, great. It's sort of a blend of shamanist practices and neural science and acupressure. And it's, it's got a lot of different, different components to it. Cool. Um, yeah. But we actually use muscle testing all the time in our relationship, you know, when we're um, trying to make choices about things or what we're going to, you know, what we're going to do or what we're going to eat or um, who's going to massage the other person. <laughs> things yeah. like that. That's an awesome idea. Yeah. I'm going to try that. It's, I think that sounds great. My husband will really roll his eyes. And <laughs> I don't care. It, it will be, I, if, I think he would actually end up enjoying it. Yeah. It's handy and fun. You know, it's, it, it, also has a little, not that this is intentional or by design, but it, it makes it all feel kind of like a game. And you realize also that some of it is kind of arbitrary. Um, you know, some of the things that we take so seriously, you know, well, I massaged you last night. You, now I'm going to massage you again, right. you know, that you can be like, well, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. You know, it's what, for some reason that's generative. So I guess it's my turn to give again. That's um, awesome. And that reminds me, too, of one thing that you speak about that's so important. Um, first, you know, I'm thinking about overall, like how relationship is a practice. And then you also mention the the act of loving and giving love and and how that's an element that you find is missing from a lot of the kind of popular culture about how to get love or how to how to preserve the love in a relationship yeah it's interesting i if you look at like the self-help books about relationships i this i noticed this when i wrote my very first book the hard questions that you mentioned earlier all i'll say 100 percent. although i'm sure there's some exceptions but 100 percent of the books that i found were about how to get love how to get someone to love you, how to get love to return to you, how to get more love. And none of them were about how to give love unless it was in the service of getting love. So that always surprised me. Like, why? Why? Because for a variety of reasons, but one of them is loving. Loving, as we talked about earlier, is so vulnerable. And everybody feels powerless because you kind of are however there is one way to take the seat of power in relationships i don't mean of domination obviously i mean of just feeling empowered and that is as a lover that's a very empowered place it just means my focus is going to be on what can i give and then also, what can I get? Because you don't want to be stupid. But if you just even bring in the question, what can I give? It changes things. Because the predominant question for most of us, myself included, is what can I get? What will I get if I do this? But when you shift it to just at least also ask, what can I give? I find it I've a rush of confidence and empowerment that I don't feel when I'm asking, what can I get? Yeah. Yeah. And, 
And I think that you you refer to this in uh, toward the end of the book in a question from maybe from someone from your Facebook group. I think you you took a bunch of questions and answered them, and and talked about that like how how one might discern when their giving is a little lopsided and they're actually in an unhealthy situation versus um, learning more about your your own power to give, to be loving, to show up that way in life. Um, and this might be a great time to talk about the power of mindfulness and meditation. And because there are, there are some great practical things, uh, you know, this is something that, again, I love about your book. It's very readable for one thing. And, um, you know, you lay out the, the arguments, the relationships um, never stabilize, expecting them to be stable is the problem. Meeting the instability together is what love is. And there's a path th through to liberation. So we've covered all those things. But then at the core is a need to, I think, get clear and to be receptive and, and to be as, as open to this thing that we've mentioned a f several times over the course of this conversation to what actually is, to being present, even if you're being present to the boredom, as you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. That seems like it would be impossible without learning mindfulness. Um, it would be for me. Yeah. It would, but there are people who, for whom it, it's not impossible, but I'd say they're, you know, it's rare. But yeah, if you don't know how to work with your mind, then it's very, very confusing. Of course, I'm, I'm not saying you have to know how to do it perfectly, or at least I hope not, because... I certainly don't. <laughs> now but, we're going to have to write the Four Noble Truths of Meditation. <laughs> right, right. right. Meditation is actually about placement of attention. So if I say to you, I don't know, don't look at your foot, but left foot, but place your attention on your left foot, something sort of goes to your left foot. And if I say, now place your attention on your right earlobe, which you can't look at, but just move that attention to your right earlobe and just notice it, that's all mindfulness is. Something moves between those two points, and that something is your awareness, your attention. And all that happens in meditation is you are practicing working with that placement of attention. In the case of what I teach and, you know, the most common object of attention is your breath. And you're not practicing placing attention on breath, so you can be great at placing attention on breath because there's not much utility in that skill. But you're practicing with the breath so that when you talk to a human being, you can place your attention on them because you have learned how to place your attention on what is happening. Because the breath is always in the present. You, you can't breathe in the past or the future. So if your attention is on the breath, you know, you could make the argument that your attention is in the present. And then when someone's talking to you, or you're trying to make a decision about what job to take or who you are, you can actually place your attention on the thing that you want to contemplate. It, it sounds so simple, and it is, but it is not easy. So we don't actually, you know, it's hard to hear the person who's talking to us. 
outside of that lens of, will this be good for me or will this be bad for me? And those are important questions. You should not release those questions. But first, can you actually hear what's being said to you? And so as if you train in mindfulness in some way, whatever way makes sense to you, the likelihood that you will be able to answer yes is greatly increased, I would say. Although my husband doesn't practice meditation and never has, but he's good at paying attention. So he's one of those, one of those people. Mm. Maybe he is, and maybe he's gotten a little through osmosis. No, 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 <laughs> no. He's much better at this kind of thing than me. He's much better. At rela- he is. He's much better, much more relational than I am. And is, is, I've learned a lot from him. He's, wow. he's good at relationships. I have to write books about them because I'm not good at them. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get him on the show next time, I guess. That would be awesome. <laughs> Um, well, Susan, I, I, again, I so appreciate your, your visiting us here on the podcast and, and I think your book, The Four Noble Truths of Love is a perfect, uh, I don't know why the word antidote comes, I don't want it to be an antidote, but it goes really well. It's like, uh, it's a good, it's a good, f- no, it's not a seasoning because it stands on its own. All these metaphors are failing me right now. But when you hold it next to a book like, let's say, Getting the Love You Want, which mm-hmm. is like a classic and, and it, it came to mind immediately when you said, um, you know, so many books are about getting love, right? Because this book is actually really helpful and there's a lot in it about mm. how to give, um, in uh-huh. particular, how to give your attention in and how you communicate with your partner. Um, you know, so props to Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt. At the same time, on the flip side of it, I think there's so much richness in what you're adding to the conversation about really kind of expanding your view of what this whole relationship thing is all about and how to find yourself in it so that you don't you don't I lose yourself it. there. I really appreciate that. And yeah, learning how to get receive love and learning how to give love seems that one without the other would be not so great. So it's good that there, there are ways to explore both. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that at the end of your book, there are some great, you you know, you talk about establishing a meditation practice and we talked about that a little bit a moment ago um, with placing attention on the breath. And I like how you talk about just getting in the habit of it is so important. You know, five minutes a day is is better than nothing and better than 30 minutes once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that you're developing that muscle, that habit. And, um, and then you also offer some other things. So when you pick up Susan's book, which I hope you will, um, there's a great um, addition to loving kindness meditation that, that we've talked about a little bit on the show, but you had some extra kind of bonus ways to do that that I, I really love. And, uh, and also a way to practice conversation um, that's, again, really helpful and centering and, and can bring some 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 of this practice to how you relate with your partner. So I, I love those practical additions at the end of your book. Yeah, thank you. And uh, and I would love to for you to let our listeners know how they can find out more about you and your work and what you're doing right now. And I know you have a lot of offerings for everyone. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, my website, susanpiver.com, but my, just my name, P-I-V-E-R. 
is a way to keep track of like where I'm teaching. And it's also, if you, you're interested in learning meditation, uh, a way, place for you to sign up for the Open Heart Project, which is my online community. It's free. And I send out a guided 10-minute meditation instructional video every week on Mondays. And if you want to learn to meditate or re-establish your practice, I, I, I heartily invite you to check it out. And but my website, susanpiver.com, is, is the best place to find these things. Great. And we will have links to all of that in the uh, transcript for the show. And as a reminder, if you want to download the detailed transcript, just visit neilsatin.com slash Susan two, that's the number two, or you can text the word passion to the number three, three, four, 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 and follow the instructions. Although I'm tempted to have them text the word boredom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. That's so funny. <laughs> but don't do that. Don't text. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll see if that word's available. If it is, I'll, I'll make something cool. And if it's not, I, I take no responsibility for whatever happens if you text the word boredom to that <laughs> number. That's so funny. Um, and in the meantime, um, Susan, I hope to have you on again. I, I just so appreciate your the depth and richness that you bring to the conversation about relationship and and taking one seat in the middle oh. of it. Well, I appreciate that. It's it's a pleasure to talk with you, and congratulations on your podcast. It's it's really bringing great conversations to light, and I, I'm just happy that you're making these kinds of insights and viewpoints available to others. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. I'm I'm glad. I'm I'm glad that I can be on this end bringing bringing everything to people. So, feels good. Thank you for for saying that. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.